Welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, Patrick Kennedy-Williams, who is a clinical psychologist from Oxford, England. And today, I have the great privilege of kicking off an episode that I have been waiting for since the moment I had the idea to do this podcast back in 2020. Today, we're welcoming to the show Spencer Glendon. Spencer and I have known each other since early 2019, when we had a chance to collaborate on a piece of research. Spencer is the founder of an organization called Probable Futures, which is dedicated to the communication of climate science, something we're going to speak about in depth during this episode. Spencer is also a senior research fellow at Woodwell Climate Research Center, which is one of the world's leading climate science think tanks based out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts. In his previous lives, Spencer has been an industrial engineer, an economic historian, and a scholar of finance, history, and language. He's also spent a considerable portion of his career as a senior executive at one of the world's leading asset management firms. Now, I first started studying climate science in 2016, and since then, I've spoken to a lot of people about climate change. Spencer is the single most insightful person I have ever spoken to when it comes to drawing connections between climate science and what that actually means for us living on the planet. What is the future going to look like? So it is my great pleasure, Spencer, to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm glad that the podcast medium doesn't share blushing, because um, I'm blushing, but uh, it's, a, it's a treat to be here. I'll say, Spencer, that Carter has very genuinely said that to me several times prior to this episode. So this is a, this is a, a hard truth coming from Carter. And it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> Spencer, in case you're wondering, I yes, I did ask Patrick to say that just so you wouldn't think that I was blowing smoke. Uh, let's let's kick off the episode the same way that we start all of our episodes, which is, could you please tell us the story of how you first came to be concerned about climate change and what that experience was like for you? Sure. So, I grew up as a I was born in 1969 uh, outside of Detroit, Michigan. And throughout my childhood, I was obsessed with why terrible things happened in Detroit during my childhood. Detroit was really a mess and people were really suffering. But where I lived in the town of Ann Arbor, where the University of Michigan is, things were prosperous and, and energetic and people were forward-looking. And, and I was obsessed with this difference between them. And as a result, I became sort of obsessed with this idea of some things must cause catastrophe and other things must cause success. And I, I won't, you know, take you all the way from my birth to today, but I developed a, a knack for thinking about and hunting down explanations for why sometimes things went terribly for groups of people and other times things went well. And I worked in a bunch of places and I wound up pretty much by accident working in finance and in finance, I was outside of the group of people who cared a lot about whether asset prices went up or down. But finance was an interesting place to think about the future. What I found interesting about finance was that it was all about 
speculating what might happen in the future using tools of the present and the past. And I had developed a practice of taking on questions that were thorny, that other people didn't think were tractable necessarily, and had made a career out of it. And in particular, this career had been built around my understanding of orthodoxies. And what I mean by that is that I came to understand that the way humans had grown their knowledge was to specialize more and more and more narrowly. And so I worked in a large investment firm called Wellington Management that managed over a trillion dollars. And there were people who had narrow jobs. Everybody had a narrow job. And I live in Boston and and there are all these universities around us. And all the people in the universities all had narrow jobs. They had all had a narrow specialty. And often they were very similar to the ones in finance. So there were these orthodoxies in academia and finance elsewhere where everybody had a narrow job. And I realized that what that meant was that nobody worked on big jobs. Like really big topics were nobody's job. And so I had developed a practice for sort of entertaining whether or not I could figure out things that were messy or what I might call transgressional. They got it, got in everybody's business, but they were nobody's business. And so in 2012, I said, you know, climate change meets these criteria. I was given a lot of latitude by my firm to work on topics of my choosing. And so I said, you know, climate change is interesting. Nobody talks about it at work. It's not anybody's job. It feels like if it's a big deal, it's really a big deal. At that time, I would say I knew a lot about climate change. I'm, I'm scientifically minded and aware, so I kind of had this ambient knowledge. But I said, let me figure out if there's something here I could be maybe insightful about. So I started downloading old journal articles from the 70s and 80s. And I was astonished to find how readable they were, how clear they were, and how accurate they had been. These predictions from the early 1980s about what would happen over the ensuing 40 years had been exactly right. And I was mystified. Like, how did I not know how good this science was? But also, how did I not know how insightful it was? Not about average temperatures, which aren't very useful, even now that I'm deeply ensconced, but the manifestations of those, like the specificity about rainfall, the specificity about extreme heat, the specificity about drying of the land, all these things about the physical world. And what I came to understand, so you asked, when did I become aware of climate change? There was this period in the mid, I guess, 2012 to 2014 or 15, when I started realizing I haven't paid any attention to the physical world in my endeavors. I'm in my mid-40s. I've been working for 25 or more years on understanding catastrophe and prosperity, never once have I asked a question about the physical world, really. I've always thought about these human institutions, about rules and education and, and corporations and governments, but I've never thought about the physical world. And that was really stunning to me. And then I realized there are these elements about climate change that seem to me very fundamental. And so I started learning about the history of temperature and discovered what, is, what I now know is called the Holocene, which is this long period of stable temperature. And I would say the moment I really came to understand climate change happened, I remember where I was. I was in my office on the 25th floor of a modern, exactly the building you would, just, you would expect, a glass-walled building overlooking the ocean where people can have deep thoughts and make decisions. It's sort of like a, a spaceship that, that hovers above society and judges it to decide who, who gets how much money. And from my 
perch in that spaceship, I looked out and I realized, you know, all the things I care about are actually contingent on climate change. Everything is contingent on, in particular, climate stability. I had just started to understand how the Holocene had been preceded by climate instability. And not long after that, I went out to Stanford and had the good fortune of meeting Ken Caldera, who's a great climate scientist. And I, I asked him, just so I'm clear, did civilization start because the climate stabilized? And he said, yeah, of course. And I said, nobody knows that. Absolutely nobody knows that civilization exists because the climate is stable. Because once the climate is stable, then you just start taking things for granted. Then you can plan. Then you can build a building, and it will still be the exactly the building you need in 100 years. And I happen to live in a building that is approaching 200 years old. And until recently, it's been the right building for this climate. And this idea that you could stop caring about the physical world because you could just count on it, both explained why I hadn't paid attention to it, but also made me aware that, oh, people are not going to understand how profound this change is because we're going from something they took for granted to something that they don't know underpins everything that they care about. And so it was at that point that I stopped really working on anything else. Okay, I think this is an important enough point that I want to take a quick pause to clarify a couple of things for our listeners who are not familiar with Earth's climatological history. So people who study geology or the paleoclimate, the history of climate, organize Earth's history into sections. And those sections have fancy names. As Spencer mentioned, the most recent section of Earth's history, starting 12,000 years ago, roughly, is the Holocene. Directly prior to the Holocene was the Pleistocene. That goes from 12,000 years ago to roughly 3 million years ago. And the Pleistocene was characterized by Earth's climate oscillating or jumping between two different climate states. Temperate or like warm interglacial periods like the one we're currently living in and ice ages, where the northern hemisphere was covered by massive ice sheets and glaciers, and global average temperatures were two to six degrees colder than they are today. It took Earth roughly 100 to 150,000 years to complete one cycle between temperate interglacial ice age and then back to temperate. Humans, as we know them now, first emerged from Africa around 200,000 years ago. And for the first 180,000 years of, their, of our existence, Earth's climate was almost always in a state of change. It was either warming up or cooling down. And so in order for society to develop, two things had to happen. One, we needed to go through sufficient societal and physical evolution to develop the necessary faculties and skills to live in one place. So complex language, complex social structures, knowledge of plants and animals, and cultivation of those plants and animals, and so on. The other thing that we needed was for Earth's climate to stop moving around so much, because if the planet was always warming up or cooling down, our sources of food were constantly moving to adjust to... Uh, 
to adjust to the climate, and also the weather conditions that we needed to deal with were also constantly changing. So around 12,000 years ago, two things happened at the same time. One, we reached a sufficiently complex stage of social evolution. And two, Earth left the most recent ice age and entered a very stable, warm interglacial period where the climate looked pretty much the same year to year for multiple thousands of years. And if you look at the archaeological record, the simultaneous and independent development of organized civilization at multiple points on the planet coincides pretty much exactly with the onset of that climate stabilization. Now, the point of this entire diatribe was to point out that when we say the climate stabilized, we don't mean it stabilized and would stay stable forever. We mean it reached a relatively stable interglacial period between what would have been two ice ages. Now, if we hadn't developed civilization and started burning fossil fuels, eventually Earth would have slipped into another ice age and continued this 100,000-year cycle. You may be thinking, this is great news, all we need to do is wait a little longer and this natural cooling cycle will offset global warming and then we don't need to worry about this. Unfortunately, that is not true. I'm not going to go into the reasons why right now because I've already spoken for way too long, but we will be doing a Climate Science 101 episode at the end of this series. So if you're interested, I encourage you to tune in and I will answer your questions then. Now, Spencer... You've given a fantastic answer as to how you first became concerned about climate change. What were the feelings associated with that process? How did that make you feel? I remember looking out that window, thinking a couple of things. One is feeling kind of silly. Silly in the sense that I had eschewed different kinds of sort of really simple wisdom in favor of kinds of cleverness to solve problems before. And if somebody had said to me, you know, it seems like pretty much everything on earth depends on the health of the ecosystem. I'd be like, well, yeah, of course. Like that would have been a, it's, it's a truism. And I would have then gone on my merry way, not worrying about the, the physical planet, which I had obviously done. So part of it was feeling like I had, one of the, one of the specific feelings was that in my community in finance and before that in academia, I was much more wide-ranging in my interests than my colleagues tended to be. And I gave myself much more freedom and was given by them much more freedom to be a generalist than others were. And yet, I was still a very conventional thinker looking for little marginal changes that might provide insight or an advantage or increase prosperity or decrease suffering without thinking about how the whole thing worked. And so part of it was just being humbled, frankly, was the feeling of, okay, I need to pay better attention to the world. Actually, there's a an author named Jenny O'Dell who wrote a book called How to Do Nothing, which I strongly recommend. She's a an artist in California, and it's 
it's really about how to pay attention to things. And I read this book not long after that moment, and I realized, you know, I don't actually pay that much attention to the physical world around me. And I started saying, I need a different awareness of the world. I need to have different lenses with, through which I see the world. I need to react to the world in ways that I have uh, ignored and let go of some of the practices that I've had before for helping the world snap into focus. I think a lot about, this is why I mentioned language before, is that I think a lot about how we do something that, uh, I think it's still called this in the in practice of, of linguistics, is chunking, which is that you no longer hear specific words with the clarity you did when you first learned them. They now are part of a package. They, they, you, you don't pay attention to everything around you in the way an infant does. Because now it just things fit into analogies. They fit into structures you've already built for them. There are these chunks that you get to use very fluidly. And if you have this facility, the, the older you get, the, the, actually the less you see because the more you... You see something that seems that you only notice the novel. You stop noticing lots of other things. And so, you know, all trees are just kind of trees. They fit into the tree lexicon and you move on. And so I realized I need to do a better job of paying attention in to the world I live in because ignoring it got me to the point where I was surprised by something as fundamental as this. And so my own feelings were, I think, first of humility, second of isolation because i realized that nobody around me knew this if i didn't know it and i was given the most freedom to look for it and then when i started talking about it uh, i i knew for sure that nobody was as concerned about it as i newly was and so now i felt not like chicken little but like someone who knew something that they wanted other people to know i had this great newfound desire to communicate like people need to know this one of the most interesting things about it for me is that I had made a career out of having insights of my own. These aren't my insights. This was like, I want you to know things that other people know. In fact, other people don't even think this is that interesting anymore. They've so moved on in the, in the academic community that this is like, Ken Caldera was unfazed by this when I asked him. I was like, this is the most important thing I've learned in my life, and you're nonplussed by it. You've long since digested it. And so this idea that I needed to be the, you know, the town crier to tell people there's something scientists have known for 20 years that you need to know right now was a strange sort of isolated feeling. And so uh, I needed to try to find some community as well. One of the things that I found so incredible about what, about the story you told was this idea of we're all sort of encouraged to specialize and to narrow our focus and to become more myopic and that's how you that's that's how we sort of uh drive our our careers that's how we drive industry that's how we that's how we drive scientific research and discovery and i was as you were as you were sort of describing this i was thinking about my own journey carter i'm sure it's probably the same for you as well where I mean, countless times i'm thinking about you know, PhD supervisors and people who say, you've got to narrow your focus. This is too broad. This is too broad. You've got to narrow it down, narrow it down. And what I, I'm understanding you're saying is that one of the pivotal moments for you is about, and it sounds like you were in a position where you were given a bit of liberty to be able to sort of expand your focus a little bit. But actually that was the process that then allowed you to sort of start asking these bigger questions. And yeah, I mean, 
the, the, the climate crisis is is so multifactorial and uh, and I, I, yeah I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm really taken by that idea that that we need to be thinking in a broader in a broader sense and is that something I mean is that something we can all do <laughs> does that does that does that take a certain type of person do you think or is that something that we can all be encouraged to do well I the I didn't know the answer to that question at the time. I was, as I said, I started out by reading science journals. And you need a, a certain facility with that language and a background in science enough to understand them. And then it turned out, however, that almost all of the, prime, the main forces in climate change are, in climate science, are intuitive. You have a physical body. You can understand them. So there's a, 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 I spent this time going around and talking to climate scientists to interview them and get to know sort of the state of the, ask questions like the one I just described to Ken Caldera. And I, I was having a dinner. I was having a Thai dinner with the, the, the scientist Alex Hall, who's at UCLA. And, and I had just said something about albedo, which is the reflectiveness of the surface of the earth. And he said, so great to talk to you because I can use all my words. And he was glad because he could use his whole vocabulary. And I was a layperson, but I could under I had learned his vocabulary. So albedo is a word that many of your listeners may not know. All it means is the reflectiveness of the surface, of a surface, is how much gets how much light gets absorbed. It's the difference between a white t-shirt and a black t-shirt on a sunny day. So if you've worn a white t-shirt on a sunny day and a black t-shirt on a sunny day and noticed the difference between them, you understand albedo. You didn't know that was the word for it, but you understand it. Climate science also has uh, analogies and metaphors, and they're good. Like the greenhouse effect is like the effect of being in a greenhouse. It The light, the energy comes in, and then it doesn't get let out. You can think of the atmosphere as a kind of thin blanket that's getting a little thicker. Also a good metaphor. So there are, the, and then you have things like, well, the warmer, so there's the Clausius-Clapeyron uh, equation, which says with every one degree C warmer that the air gets, it holds 7% more moisture. Now that's an, I kind of wish everybody knew that. Um, and I also wish people knew the rule of 72, which is that when that, that would tell you that, well, if it increases 7% with each one degree centigrade warming, then 10 degrees warmer air holds 100% more moisture. So there's your little factoid, if you want, that 10 degrees warmer air holds 100% more moisture almost. Well, all you really need to know is that I've been outside on warm days, and they can be very muggy. And super cold days, the air is dry. Like, it's the same effect. It's the same knowledge that cold air just doesn't hold much water, and warm air holds a lot more water. And if you're outside on a warm, dry day, it will dry things out. That's part of how you get drought. And so there's a way that just being physically aware in the world, using our bodies, and using good metaphors is sufficient to really understand almost all of the powerful effects of climate change. And so it happens to not be like artificial intelligence or CRISPR or DNA in general, even virology. Like people are talking about, I do not understand really what a protein is or you can, you know, maybe I could draw a bad facsimile of a coronavirus, uh, you know, viral cell. But the idea that I would understand what happens, but I actually do understand without learning a lot of physical science, how sunshine 
how the evenings warm the sun, warm the surface more on a black top than on a white thing. I understand how trees make things moist and cool. And so this is actually a knowledge that can be held generally. The physical knowledge of the earth is, is accessible to everyone. And then incorporating it into whatever their life is, I became became very obvious to me, could be done by anyone. Those same that same awareness can be brought in. So there are, you know, how your iPhone works, I'm sorry, it's going to remain magic. But how the climate around you works does not is not magic. And and you have the physical tools uh through observation and experience to understand them. And so I don't think it's plausible that we go into a world where we're all generalists, but incorporating climate into our everyday lives is doable for everybody. And that's part of what encouraged me that there was a way to make this knowledge accessible to more people, make it possible for more people to join these conversations, um, and to have people not leave climate science to the scientists and and in organizations, part of the reason I, I left finance was I could see that finance was going to put climate science to the extent that it was included in a group that would now be a new slice, right? There'd be a new orthodoxy that would just be, we have a pie that has, you know, short-term U.S. bonds, currency trading, and then there'd be a sustainability slice as well. It would be snuck in there. And my hope was that it could be a generalized knowledge that people could incorporate more like just information generally or money generally. The idea that these are part of the everyday language, they're part of the way of an awareness of being in the world and that climate should be like that. So there's a kind of encouragement of generalizing your awareness that I do think everyone can do. Uh, I actually have now empirical evidence of this. So we're going to talk later about this initiative that I founded called Probable Futures. And one of the things we've done is now interacted with people at different ages. And I've found that the quality and sort of profundity of questions is inversely correlated to age and professional success. So the older and more successful people get, the narrower their question gets. And fifth graders ask devastatingly good questions because they're not specialists yet. And the fifth grader says, like, nobody who's who's above 20 has asked anything about animals. Like, just like they care about the animals. They ask an analytical question about the biosphere or about diversity or about electric vehicles or... But a fifth grader says, it seems like animals are suffering. Shouldn't we stop making that happen? And a fifth grader asks, we, so we had this, the way this happened was a, uh, a fifth grade teacher, actually some, the parents of a fifth grade child were interested in our work, told their, their kid's science teacher about our work. Science teacher shared it with some other teachers. They were interested in the work, and they reached out just to say, hey, we really like your work. We think it's not appropriate for fifth graders yet because fifth graders are pretty young. Like, this is a pretty heavy topic. And then the teachers kept talking amongst themselves, like, you know, the kids might be interested. So they decided just to do a survey. 
the this is a school in Massachusetts. There are three fifth grade classes. They asked their kids, do you have questions about climate change? And they wound up with all, the kids had all these questions. And if a 45-year-old could ask questions that good, we'd be in so much better shape. They are clear-headed. They are, they don't parse, they understand moral trade-offs. And the older you get, the more you've compartmentalized, the more you're trying to, the more you experience people asking narrow questions and clever questions and specific questions, but often not wise questions. And I do think that one of the most interesting parts is that the kids use emotional language very frankly. I'm mad at climate change, one kid wrote. Climate change makes me sad. One kid wrote, I wonder what the people who work at the oil factories feel every day. And so uh, my wife is a contemporary art curator. And I was once at a dinner where somebody went on one of these typical rants about how modern art is garbage. And there was some painting that the this guy said, you know, my three-year-old could do that. And Lisa wasn't there at the dinner, but there's something about it that really irked me. And I, I went home that night and I said, this guy kept talking about how his kids could have made these paintings. She said, that might be true, but he couldn't. The kids might have been capable of that, but there's no way the adult could. Because the adult long since would have made the world too analytical, would have made the world too, they would have been too clever. They would not have looked at the color red long enough and really appreciated it to find wonder in it. And so I do think that specialization is akin to a kind of distancing. And that distancing makes things lower stakes emotionally and also makes it easier to make truly bad decisions that are clever and narrowly right. I'm going to see if I can link this discussion with the next topic in, a, in an interesting way. Um, I'll do my best. So I think there is actually one form of specialization which can be extremely helpful and productive. And that's the idea of locus of control. And if our, if our listeners are not familiar, it's the idea that if you are faced with something difficult, you can divide that difficult thing into parts and sort it into portions that you have control over and portions that you have no control over. And generally, most things you have very little control over, but you always have control over how you personally react and the actions that you personally take. So there's always some small portion of a difficult thing that is directly within your locus of control. I think specializing in the the portion of difficult things that you can that you can affect. And by specializing, I mean spend most of your time thinking and working on those to the exclusion of the parts that you have you really can't affect. Can be a very healthy and productive way to deal with difficult things in your life. Speaking of difficult things, Spencer, I know you have struggled for a large portion of your life with severe chronic illness. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that experience has been like for you and whether or not you've employed the uh, the concept of locus of control or whether there are other mental health management strategies that you've learned throughout your life um, as a result of this illness that 
have helped you engage with difficult things in, in a more productive way? Uh, I My body started being out of control when I was about 15. I have a disease called ulcerative colitis, which is unpleasant and uncomfortable. And, uh, and at a time in a boy's life when bodies changing in lots of ways and, uh, ninth grade, eighth grade, 10th grade, those are no fun for anybody really. Uh, they're, they're hard times emotionally. There's a lot of change going on and, and, uh, but there's a lot of desire at that time for control, for the desire of getting stronger and bigger and, and having other feelings that, that, you know, now you want different things from other people. And I realized I was having trouble you know, controlling my digestive system at all. And in fact, controlling it was sort of a, a silly concept. It was out of control and I was, you know, experiencing that. And and I had to learn how to live with the disappointment of not being able to do all the things I wanted to do. At some point in time, my mother actually took me to see a, a therapist and I described to him what was going on. And he said, well, it sounds like you feel like you're out of control. And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely out of control. And he said, well, are you truly absolutely out of control? Well, what do you mean? He said, well, what can you do today? And what I came to realize with his help was I needed to set realistic goals for what I could control and what I couldn't. And I needed to be emotionally prepared for failing some of the time, but also give myself credit when I could do what I could do. So at that time, he was like, you know, if some days all you can do is get up and take a shower and 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 be awake for a while and then go back and lie down well then you did those things you you had some amount of things some amount of control some amount of you had goals you met those goals other days you go to school i would sometimes go to school for part of the day and then then go home and then i did that like that happened i i i made that happen and this idea of adjusting goals where you know i'm a i'm a white man who was in a prosperous community at the age of 15 16 you know, everyone can be the president. You you know, you could sort of, anything's possible. Well, everything was not possible. Uh, you know, passing classes wasn't obviously going to happen. And so the idea that I had to have limits and needed to just respect the fact that my body was not under my control was something I had to learn. It's not a disease that you can fight. There is often the language around illness of you're going to fight something it's a disease that's made worse by stress, made worse by by some notion of fighting. It's actually made better if you can be calm and relaxed. And so this idea that it was an opposition or that it was something I would conquer, it was not going to go away. I was never going to be cured of it. But there was a chance it would get under control. It would calm down. It would sort of relax and allow me more space. And so that's actually what happened. I I did get better over a few years, and eventually I was able to live for many years with, given the way I would feel felt about it was I was given more license. I had more scope. But at times that scope would shrink, and that scope was never the same scope as the people who believed they could do everything. I always needed a lot of sleep. Um, my body would sort of break down if I overdid it. And so I had to respect my limits. And learning to do that at a young age has been a great benefit. It was hard then, and uh, there are times it remains hard now. In my 30s, I was diagnosed with a rare liver disease, and I wound up very ill for quite some time and then receiving a liver transplant, all of which was outside of my control as well. And so some notion that I can't take anything for granted and that I should be happy when things go well 
is the kind of thing you learn as a truism I would have learned before I was 15. Somebody would have said to me, you know, you can't take things for granted and you should appreciate good, good things. And I would have said, oh, that sounds smart. I'm going to make note of that. But it became real to me. And so some of this was sort of growing up faster, perhaps, than I might have otherwise, having some of the insights of that are now associated with older age when I was younger. But it forced me to accept limits and accept that within those limits, there could be a great life, which is why I, I don't want the tone of this to be that I've suffered. I don't feel like I've suffered. I feel like I have lived within constraints. And many times, it, I think I was happier than the people who had no constraints because they perceived themselves to be able to do everything. And it was always clear to me that I couldn't do everything. My my wife, Lisa, and I, whom I mentioned before, we, we've been very conscious. We've been together since we were very young in college, and I was in the hospital some of that time. And it was just clear that our relationship needed to have boundaries, not between each other, but in terms of our expectations. What we wanted from life or hoped for from life was always a trade-off. I came to understand the word compromise as being a pretty good word, being a pretty attractive word. It's a promise is the main word in it. And so you make a promise that you're going to you're going to find a way to to make good things happen within constraints. It's funny when I went to graduate school, I I dragged Lisa here. I, she did not want to live in Boston where we now live. So we made a deal, which was that when I finished my graduate degree, we'd live wherever she wanted to live. And I dutifully got job offers in cities where we anticipated she would want to live and then shortly before I would have accepted any of those jobs in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. She got offered a great job here in Boston where I had no offers. And so I just said no to all the jobs I'd gotten, many of which were ones that were ones my classmates would have murdered me for. But I was like, no, the, like, the best things in my life have happened by accepting a limit. And so Lisa wants to limit us in this way. I'll just go look for work. That'll be okay. And that's actually how I wound up in finance was we'd made a deal. It was a good deal. And by accepting that deal, I had to go look for something else. And that something else wound up being uh, my job in finance. So I think that's given me a, a framework that's made it easier for me to accept changes, accept limits, accept uncertainty, and value risk as opposed to valuing maximization. Spencer, there's, there are so many avenues and routes I would love to kind of continue along based on how you, how you just responded to that question. Carter and I are really mindful not to kind of over-analogize your experience of chronic illness, but at the same time, we can't help but wonder, are there ways in which that experience has helped you to kind of, you know, understand and relate to uh, climate change in the way that in the way that you have? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the ways I, un I know that there is a lot of cultural work to be done is that there are people, including Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and others, who believe we should try to live on Mars. So, Mars has no atmosphere, really. It has no magnetic field, so it's bombarded by cosmic rays. The average temperature on Mars is minus 60 degrees centigrade. There's a south pole of Mars, which is actually ice that's made up of carbon dioxide because the place is so cold. No one who thinks about physical limits would think, okay, that's a place we can live. 
the idea that we would have to make everything, we'd have to make absolutely everything to do anything there, is the kind of mindset that says, well, you know, I'm sort of a post-Earth capitalist. I'm ready to leave this, this planet. The flip side of that is, like, this planet is so amazing and even will be so amazing in a damaged state. It is an amazing place. Like, it is a non-trivial thing. We should think about this every day, that there is no planet, that Mars is the closest in terms of suitability that we know of. I've just listed all of Mars's demerits, effectively. And yet, it's still second place behind, behind our planet. And so... The abundance, the beauty of our planet is so extraordinary, and the unlikelihood of our lives is so extraordinary that the ability to appreciate how great our planet is should, I think, have two effects. One is make us more adamant about preserving it as opposed to fantasizing about living in space. But the other is live with a kind of acceptance that it is going to be different because of the damage we've inflicted on it and continue to inflict on it, and yet it will still be wondrous. We will still be fortunate to live here. And it's a little bit like getting a disease or being or aging. It's not going to be as nice as it was. You know, you're both younger men than I. I got bad news for you. You're never going to feel the same way as you did when you were younger than you are now. And one view of that is, well, that's lousy. The rest of my life is going to suck. And the other is, well, there are trade-offs. I, I'm smarter now, or I'm wiser now, or I can value different things. I can change. I can adapt to living in this body that is a less perfect body than the one I had before and not be hopeless about it. And so this idea of hopefulness, I think, is one that i I'm hopeful for lots of things, and I've been hopeful throughout when I was sick and when I'm sick now, which is also not infrequent. doesn't mean I'm optimistic about it. And optimism is a mindset that, well, I don't know how things will work out, but it always just works out for the best. Things just get better. It'll just turn out. I'm not a participant in it. I just uh, benefit from it. Just get things get better. Whereas hope is a more active emotion, and it's also one that is participatory. And also, it it involves the idea of hoping for something you can't even articulate. I don't know quite it is what it is to be hopeful for. I don't know exactly, but that hope is not extinguished by the idea that there are boundaries on it. And so uh, I think I have... Um, benefited. I'm sure I've benefited in lots of ways from my illnesses. It's one of the reasons I say I don't feel like I've suffered for them. They've taught me things that were valuable. They've made me more realistic about things that uh, you can't fight against in terms of your idea of locus of control. But also they've made me more aware that there can be real joy. And joy, I think, is a more valuable word than happiness. There can be real joy in constrained times, in constrained spaces, in constrained in constraints of any kind. I'll, I hadn't planned on speaking nearly as much about Lisa, but um, one of the things she said to me years ago was that she can tell sometimes when an art student is going to struggle because by the size of the canvas they build for their first works. Like if you have a really big, big canvas, the chances of it actually being well composed are extraordinarily low. 
But this idea, you're just going to make something awesome and it's going to be enormous. It's going to, I'm going to start out big. Whereas the person who says, I'm going to give myself these constraints. I'm going to have a small canvas and I'm going to make something in this small space. It's much more likely that they'll do something beautiful or clear or, or purposeful in that space as opposed to one that's just too big and too much of everything. And that idea that there is beauty in small things, there is beauty in constraints, that having what I would call a bounded imagination is a much more productive imagination than the sort of everything is possible and you should be disappointed than if everything doesn't happen. And so I think that that's a, a, a mindset that I've been fortunate to have um, and I do think can be nourishing and comforting when we consider things we are going to lose. And I would say about climate change, we're going to lose many things and they are going to be sad. And having that sadness while also having the joy of what remains and the joy of what we might discover is just honestly living. Wanting to live in a world where there is no sadness is folly even if the climate were perfect. And so people saying, I don't want to do that because it would be sad, I say, well, you're going to miss out on a lot of life if you just want to ensure you're never exposed to sadness. There's a difference between sadness and hopelessness. There's a difference between sadness and depression. And so engaging with things that are sad and acknowledging them, but at the same time finding, or and, not but, and at the same time finding joy, A, for what we had, appreciating the things before they're gone, and B, in what remains, which still is abundant, I think is a skill we're all going to need more of, as opposed to the promise that the, the discipline I spent most of my time in economics promises happiness only with more, which I think is a, a dangerous mindset. This is something we spoke about actually in our last episode with Britt Ray. We were speaking about the decision of whether or not to have children in the context of a changing climate. And one of the things that came up during this discussion was the idea that just because we're going to lose many things as the climate continues to warm doesn't mean that a child's life who lives through this will be less wonderful or less meaningful. Um, and particularly, we spoke about the, the concept that modern society has largely confused comfort for happiness and that just because we're going to lose some comforts, we're going to have to live in a world that has less in it. Maybe living in a world with a little bit less and a little bit more hardship will help us refocus on the things that really matter and that in those things we can find great sources of meaning and fulfillment. I think that's right, but I would also say that it's it's not much less like it's still there's still so much you know the the for example the the primary way many cultures punish people is by isolating them we don't need to be isolated and so this notion that a changing climate needs to make us more lonely strikes me as nonsensical modern life has made us more lonely and we could become a lot less lonely in forming community and that wouldn't be less at all. That would actually be more. It would just be more of things that aren't new, more of things that aren't obviously more. It's that we could have, it, it, part of it is 
one of the ways I th- one of the most interesting things about interacting with climate scientists and scientists in general is that the rewards for scientists are all in the marginal insight. So if you have your slice, it's about making the slice even longer, if you will, bigger. There's more area in the slice. You're you're going out to the the the, the frontier. But the knowledge that was most profound to me that was known within earth sciences was knowledge that had long since been passed by the frontier, so much so that nobody in climate science was interested anymore, which is that a stable climate gave us civilization. So that was a piece of knowledge that was no longer valued in science because it wasn't novel anymore. It doesn't mean it's any less. It just means it doesn't meet the requirements for accolades and rewards that we currently have. So there's this abundance of things that already exist that we just don't appreciate that I would say the obsession with more of the things we have. I mean, Carter's got a bunch of books behind him right now in the image, and it's not really the case that he probably needs more books in some sense, right? There are beautiful books behind him that have things he could reread and and find great joy in, things he'd forgotten about, and there's a reason he kept them. But you know, I'm an, a, an acquisitive person with as it comes to books, but the idea that we need to always have novel things as opposed to appreciate the things we already have would be, a, I think, a, a way I'd rather say it than than to. It's more about being satisfied and appreciating than about learning to be have different aesthetics or different values. It's actually that often we have values that we don't live, and we could have a lot more abundance in terms that are non-commercial often, but that's about prioritization and valuing. And, and so one of the things I worry most about in the application of climate science is that people will barrel ahead with an obsession with creating more economic activity because preserving the climate would be costly. And what will happen is we'd be more busy and poorer. Uh, There's a term that I think is poorly understood, which is just the idea of wealth. Wealth is narrowly used to describe people, the amount of money people have, or the amount of things that have monetary value. But I think of wealth as being the access to things you don't have to pay for. Right. So the age-old question of why does gold cost more than water? You know, water is necessary for all human life and gold has no value except that it is scarce and nice to look at and yet in canada you can go to a store and ask for a cup of water and they will literally give it to you for free i don't know of any stores you can go into and ask for gold and and get it for free and a, a traditional economist would say well in canada water is abundant and gold is scarce and so the difference in price comes from the difference in scarcity And yes, that is the orthodox view, but it does raise the question of should monetary value value and wealth always be the same thing? Or are there forms of wealth that the market does not currently recognize as traditional wealth that we really should be paying more attention to? And I think, Spencer, as you point out, as climate change starts to erode some of these non-traditional sources of wealth, we're going to start to recognize that we really should have been paying more attention to them uh, than we were. With that said, I think we're almost out of time. So in the last 10 minutes, I'd love to speak briefly about probable futures. Could you tell us a little bit about the organization you founded and why? 
Sure. So Probable Futures embodies many of the ideas we've talked about up until now. It's an initiative that is not for profit. It's not a business. It's an initiative to make available to everyone in the world resources that allow them to bring climate awareness into their own lives. So much of it is uh, written and drawn and photographed uh, didactic material, learning material that helps you learn earth sciences in a way that's resonant and vivid and beautiful so that you can appreciate the planet you live on a little better. You can understand some of those things that you actually intuitively know, but know them more clearly and with a little more precision and specificity. And then there are maps. And these maps, what they do is they allow you to see how the weather has changed from first the late 20th century to the recent times to then warming levels of one and a half to two and a half and three degrees C. Because as I said at the beginning, it turns out that climate models can tell us a lot about what life will be like in different climates. And we wanted to make it vivid and clear and useful to people to say, hey, in this place where I live or a place I care about or a place where lots of other people live, how will the weather change in ways that will be material? So the kinds of things you'll see is the number of days above 30 degrees C or 32 degrees C or 35 degrees C, which are 90, 95 degrees Fahrenheit. How many days will there be in a year, would you expect in a year when the that, that have a mixture of temperature and humidity that is hard for the human body? It's called a wet bulb temperature of above 28 or 30 degrees C, where the human body really doesn't function well. We are warm-blooded mammals. And so you can start to make, uh, you can start to see vividly, A, how much the climate has already changed, B, what it would feel like. Use some of those sensory experiences. Say, what would it feel like to live in these places as they change? And then embedded in these maps are stories about how those things, those changes already are mattering and are likely to matter more for life in those places. So to give a feeling for it, every city in the world, every town in the world has a storm sewer, some way of dealing with rainfall so that it doesn't flood out the, the residents. Well, all of those storm sewers were built with tolerances that were based on the past stable range of precipitation. As that changes, take London. London is a place that had consistent rain over the course of the year, but always very gentle. That's why London now has flooding, because it rains harder than it's ever rained before. It never used to rain hard in London. It just used to rain often. That difference between often and hard is a really, really big difference for the city of London and for all the places where rain seemed to be just part of life, but it wasn't, it was a specific kind of rain. The timing of the monsoon in countries that, in places that depend on the monsoon for agriculture, things like that, that are, they may not seem like a big deal until you look around and you realize, I live in a physical world and this physical world has all of these assumptions in it. The houses we all live in have assumptions about how many days there will be that are hot or cold, how hot or cold they will be, how the rainwater will be dealt with. All of that physical planet live, all of that physical infrastructure of civilization is conditional on the weather around it. And we want people to be able to incorporate the changes both to, and this gets to your point about control, 
I would use the word manage, to manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. The idea of having a plan to say, all right, here are things that we cannot stop from happening, but we can prepare for. And that preparation is a, is a valuable thing to do. And the other is, now I can see more vividly what two and a half or three degrees C would mean for life in all of these different places. And there is really no place that is exempt from big changes at that level of warming. And hopefully that's motivating to people to find ways to limit the amount of change that happens. And so Probable Futures is has a home at probablefutures.org. And we're nearly done. In September, there will be the last installment. So now there's one volume about heat, one volume about precipitation, and the last volume will be, actually, the first is, is heat, the second is land, the second is water, and the third will be land. And it will have drought, wildfire, and permafrost. And the hope is that if you spend time at probablefutures.org, you, have, you gain an awareness that allows you to navigate the world, being able to pay attention constructively, being able to apply what you've learned in whatever your slice of life is. Even if you can't become a generalist, you can bring this general knowledge into your world. And the other is that it gives you a vocabulary and a confidence to share it in community, to talk about it with other people. And maybe end with this, which is that we've worked a bunch with people who think about psychology a lot or experts in psychology. And one of the goals is to transform the feelings about climate change from anxiety to practical feelings that include fear. Because fear is a much more constructive emotion than anxiety. Fear is something you can name. Fear is something you can point to and say, I don't want this to happen. Anxiety is just this unstructured emotion that it's just bad and it tends to make you shut down. And so it's a we work to make it beautiful and resonant and vivid and useful. And it is a bit scary, but it's scary in a way that we hope also includes wonder and beauty in a way that says, this is a tremendous human endeavor. I, we've come to the belief that understanding how our world works might be humans' greatest achievement. Let's celebrate it and say, we understand this and we can do something about it. That's a lot. I remember meeting a graduate student in, from MIT who was studying clouds. And afterwards, I said to scientists, I said, so clouds, like, well, how do you study clouds? He goes, oh, and a, a famous climate scientist said to me, oh, that poor kid. We're never going to understand clouds. And then the next thing he said is, thank God it's not clouds. Because if it were clouds that were causing climate change, we'd be screwed. Like, it would be so hard to understand or do anything about it. It happens to be stuff we understand we can do something about. And so the idea that I look out my window and I can now understand a lot of what's happening out there is wondrous. And so hopefully that comes across in a way that's encouraging. And so that's one of the words we use a lot is that it should be encouraging because we're gonna need courage to deal with this. But courage and imagination are what makes being a human special. They're among the most lovely things about being a person. And so. We hope that by encouraging the best parts of humanity, we make we increase the probability that the future is good.
All right. Episode six, Spencer Glendon. We are a little over the usual time that we like to run an episode already, but I just did not have the heart to end that episode early because <laughs> I just really, really enjoy listening to Spencer speak. What, what I love about, I mean, we were saying this after, after the record, you know, there was, I was like making mental notes for, for all areas of my life. <laughs> throughout the episode I was like mostly you're gonna have to go out and buy some new art supplies though right (laughs) yeah exactly exactly buy the right size canvas exactly yeah my goodness that just like went that went straight to me and I was like oh my goodness that's hugely relevant to me yeah no he's he's phenomenal yeah love just loved talking with him and didn't want it to there's a bit of a theme here that I just never want these conversations to to finish well let's let's not finish them yet let's jump into our first question so Our listeners may not know that you started your career treating patients with chronic illness. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what you learned from that process, whether or not the things that Spencer were saying resonated with you and are similar to what you would work on with these patients, and whether these lessons have stayed relevant uh, now that you are treating patients suffering from distress related to climate change given both climate change and chronic illness are big, difficult problems that are largely outside the control of the people suffering from them. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's almost no better person or no better conversation to bridge that those two ideas than Spencer in, in just how he spoke so eloquently about it. And, oh, there are so many crossovers you know, some of the things he said about learning to respect his limits at a young age and the, the benefits that came that came with, you know, saying something like, I was happier than those without constraints at times because they perceived that they could do anything and everything, you know, and the best things in my life have happened by accepting my limits. And that, I, I, I can't emphasize enough how important that, that kind of mindset is, I think for all of us. But when you're, when you're facing some form of uh, limitation, you know, be it physical or physiological or life-limiting illness even, you know, we're, we're always taught in our training there's person A who might really struggle against that reality uh, and might overstretch themselves or might, or might become really passive in the face of the situation. You talked in the episode, it's great that you mentioned like, locus of control, right? The degree to which we feel we're in control of our circumstances or the degree to which we feel life just happens to us. Person A, who becomes really quite undone by, by, by this new reality, say, living with a chronic illness. And then there's person B who is able to, you know, we call it, you know, adjustment to chronic illness or adaptation. We use these kind of words to describe that psychological alchemy, really, that, that allows a person to still thrive. And, it's, and in some cases, experience huge joy, in, in that in that new reality you know we talk about ideas like post-traumatic growth right the idea that after something deeply unsettling happens to us that unsettling thing in itself kind of unlocks a new appreciation for some aspect of our lives that we've taken for granted before right so there's lots of opportunities for you know for post-traumatic growth in this area and you know famously there was a study looking at um, people with spinal cord injury and comparing measures of subjective well-being a year after that spinal cord injury and people who were lottery winners a year after their lottery win. And 
some would say bizarrely, others would say predictably, it was that first group who were reporting higher levels of subjective well-being, which doesn't make any sense at all when you look at it. Until you start to kind of work with people who ha- who do have an appreciation for the things in their lives that they can do and existing within the within those confines, it, it's it's an incredible uh, it was an incredible uh, area to work in. And I think we've, we've we've talked about this before that then when I kind of moved over to the climate space all of a sudden the conversation seemed to have such a familiarity and a, and a resonance from that time in my career, you know, talking about the importance of working within constraints, talking about, you know, um, with our conversation with Britt Ray uh, in episode five as well was really illuminating for me in that sense, how to find joy, you know, taking away the comforts that we take for granted doesn't take away joy in our lives, that joy and hardship can exist at the same time. In fact, the some would say the two are almost kind of one can exaggerate the other or bring the other more into focus. All of these things that, that these kind of parallel emotional experiences that seem contradictory to one another actually, you know, can, can, can work in, in harmony with one another. And I think Spencer's talking about that as almost by saying it was once I accepted my limits that my, I made the best decisions I'd ever made in my life and my life was at, at its most joyous fascinating and then you know move over to the kind of climate conversation and so much of the work we do now is about helping people helping helping organizations uh helping communities understand their limits and work within them effectively Uh, so yeah it's yeah it's a it's a an incredible parallel really and it touches on a little bit you know so much of so much of kind of modern rational cognitive psychotherapy cbt etc kind of draws on basic kind of stoic philosophy you know kind of epictetus and marcus aurelius and these kind of old old stoic philosophers who talk about make the best of what's in our power and take the rest as it naturally happens feel empowered over what we can control accept as stoically as possible the things we can't uh expensive has just seemed like a real embodiment of that idea and and that's so true in the climate space as well so i've read a lot of the stoics um i've read a lot of Buddhist texts that have similar similar ideas to the Stoics. Um, or maybe I should say the Stoics have similar idea to the Buddhists. I'm not sure which came first. And I've spoken with Spencer about this concept of limits. And broadly, I agree that there can be an enormous amount of joy in accepting limits and living within them, being grateful for what you have and trying to make the most out of what you have as opposed to always looking for more. I think always looking for more is absolutely a recipe for unhappiness. That said, however, I also believe that most people have no idea what their limits are. And the only way to find those limits is to push yourself and to try and expand what you can do. So the simplest example is if I go to the gym I might, for the first time ever, I might uh, sit down with the bench press and say, oh, I can, I can only lift 60 pounds. That's my limit. So, so, okay, so I could accept that is my limit and be happy with the fact that I can at least lift 60 pounds and I'll keep doing that and at least maintain the level of fitness that I have. But I could also go to the gym the next day and, and try and lift 61 pounds and then 
once I can do that, 62 pounds. And then after a year of increasing the weight, you know, maybe I can lift 200 pounds or, or 150 pounds or whatever. And I've definitely also found an enormous amount of joy in my life trying to push my limits and discover if I can do more and see if my horizons are broader than I thought. So what I'd love, if you could speak about it a little bit, Patrick, is like, how, how do you know when to accept limits and when to push them? Because I believe that both of these things are equally important and I really, I'm not sure I understand how they, how they interact or how to use them both in an intelligent way. Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> I suppose that, I mean, I, I suppose there are just are some absolute limits. What does it feel like? This is the question to ask yourself, I think. It's like, what does it feel like when you're pushing limits in a productive way, I suppose? And what does it look like and feel like when, if you like a, a kind of constant striving for things that are just beyond your limits, is you know ultimately counterproductive, right? Or hold, or holding you back. So originally we were going to end the episode here, but during the review process that we go through with all of our guests prior to publishing the episode, Spencer sent us this wonderful email, which I'm going to read as the ending of the episode instead. He says. At the end of the episode, you two discuss living within versus challenging limits. I have some thoughts that I hope you'll find helpful. First, I encourage people to explore their abilities and environments to find limits. I think there are better and worse ways to do this. Probing carefully to discover them is likely to be both safer and more revelatory. I mean that literally. It will reveal a lot about both yourself and the world around you. Going fast until you slam into and pass limits is dangerous. Assuming or even asserting that you have no limits is reckless and exceedingly likely to be damaging. So to take Carter's weightlifting example, consider these approaches. Person A asks a friend to be a spotter, starts with light weights, and works their way up. When they hit a limit, their friend helps them with the bar and they assess. Over the coming weeks, they work at that limit and figure out if the limit is fixed or flexible. If it's fixed, they accept it. If it turns out they can move the limit, great. Person B doesn't ask for a spotter, starts with 25 pounds and finds it easy, tries 50 and finds it challenging, and then next decides to try 100 and gets hurt. There's an analogy here to the regulation of potentially risky things. Should we regulate them before trying them out? Should we try them out carefully, assessing as we go? Or should we go full speed ahead and hope for the best? Silicon Valley is largely firmly in the last camp. Move fast and break things. The analogy here to climate change is that we have barreled towards two degrees warming at an alarming, accelerating pace. If instead we had slowed and probed higher temperatures gradually to discern their consequences, catastrophe would be much less likely. The most dangerous people are the ones who keep insisting that there are no limits. Secondly, I think there are complex systems and simple systems, and their limits should likely be approached differently. Speaking from experience, my body is barely stable. 
I have a severely suppressed immune system, two chronic diseases, and I'm over 50. In contrast, Carter is much younger and doesn't have any chronic health problems. My exploration of limits is likely more complicated than his. If he lifts too much weight, he might suffer a muscle injury. I might incur permanent damage. I might get exhausted and be much more vulnerable to flares in my diseases or infection. Passing one limit might tip me over other ones. My behavior around limits should be more careful because more of my body's systems are near their limits. The one thing that we didn't talk about in our conversation that I wish we had was relationships. Friendship, love, and care make us more resilient. This is true at the individual level, the community level, the societal level, and even globally. A lonely, isolated, untrusting group of people, no matter how large or small, hits limits much earlier than a nurturing, familiar, trusting one does. This is one of the reasons I think your endeavor is so important. If we can be healthy emotionally, be connected and social, and have conversations about our values, constraints, practices, fears, etc., we will certainly do a better job at responding to climate change. I tell people that if they are working on strengthening social ties and have a sense of beauty and wonder, they are doing climate work, even if it seems to have nothing to do with carbon dioxide. To end, take this example. Almost all renewable energy requires long-term contracts. Sharing, new infrastructure in someone's backyard, and a commitment to maintenance. Diesel generators require none of those things. An angry, untrusting society will always choose fossil fuels. With that said, next week we are going to speak with Dr. Yadvinder Mali, who is a leading expert on tropical forests and climate change. So if you are someone who struggles with the ongoing loss of nature around us, or just loves nature and is interested in it, please join us next week. You will really enjoy the conversation. In the meantime, we are going to play Broccoli by Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs to end the episode. And thank you very much for listening.